Good morning. morning. Let's begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all the blessings you've provided for us, the truths you've revealed, for what Christ has achieved. We ask that your spirit will join us. Fill us with your love. And as we talk about some deep truths today, may it always be in the spirit of love that our hearts can be drawn to you and your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 13, Isaiah, and the title is Rebirth of Planet Earth. And what do you think of the title, Rebirth of Planet Earth? Rebirth of Planet Earth. As a Christian, what is your belief about the future of the planet as we know it today? Destroy. Destroy. So from the memory verse, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I created a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. So what happens to the planet? Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Or Psalms 102.25-27. In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years never end. Or Isaiah 51.6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look to the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. And there are more texts in the Scripture. It's just a, a sampling. So what is going to happen to the earth if, as a Christian biblical worldview? What's going to happen in the future of this planet? It's going to be destroyed and replaced with a better one. Can we stop the destruction of the earth as we know it? Should we try and stop it? Because the earth is going to be destroyed, replaced with a new earth, a planet free from all sin, disease, death, does that mean that we do not have to be good stewards, that we are free to pollute and free to destroy the earth? Does not mean that. I want you to hear that. Just because we know this earth is going to be destroyed does not give us freedom to abuse and exploit the planet. We have a responsibility to be good stewards. Why? It's how we were created in the image of God. What happens to the earth in the future, as we know it, if we, and in fact, we convert the entire human population, and all of us become super good stewards, what's going to happen to the earth? The earth will continue to degenerate. The earth will continue to degenerate, and it's going to be destroyed. Even if we're all perfect stewards. Understand that. What happens to us, to you and me, if we are negligent, selfish, unfaithful stewards? What happens to us? It damages our characters, we harden our hearts, and we are lost. But what happens to us if we're good stewards? We live in harmony with God, we, do, we protect nature, we help others. What happens to us? You see, the point of good stewardship ultimately is not saving this world which groans under the weight of sin, as Paul says in Romans 8. It's about our hearts, minds, and characters, yes. So a metaphor might be if we take care of our bodies, we eat right, we exercise, all of that, we still die. Because the body is aging. The body's decaying. Yeah. But we still have responsibility to be good stewards of our body, don't we? So we're not to exploit it. We're, We're to be good stewards. But the planet is still decaying and dying, groaning under the weight of sin. Now, let's be very clear here. I want you to hear me. Our enemy, the liar, the father of lies, has advanced a false worldview that's seducing Christians through their desire to be good stewards. What am I talking about? Well, the philosophy that the world is bracing today, the so-called enlightened view, is that there's no God. There's no creator. There's no intelligence behind it. We evolved from lower life forms. It's not that the world is a world of sin and a creator is coming to recreate it. No, no, that's not wisdom. That's foolishness. The the, the worldview is the worldview of godless evolution. And the future of godless evolution is, what's the future of godless evolution? What's the worldview of those who hold that? Where is the world going? Well, overpopulation is the worldview. Exploiting and destroying the resources. And we must act now to save the planet in order to save ourselves. You understand, the world 
today believe, since there is no God, since we all evolved from lower life forms, we're the highest existent uh, 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 animal on the planet. The Earth is our mother, Mother Earth. It's our spaceship. It has limited resources. And if we don't stop population growth, carbon emissions, consuming the forest, fishing out the oceans, then the planet is going to die. Humanity will die. Therefore, we must save the planet. And in order to save the planet, we must stop consuming. We must stop fossil fuels. We must stop the earth with all its waste and plastic and garbage. We must stop polluting it with all this stuff. We must stop using the two great philosophies. Creator God, who created the earth and life upon it. In this worldview, God loves us. Human beings made in his image. And the future is the future of hope in which the earth, as we know it, is recreated anew, the home of the righteous, the perfect, sinless earth. And there is nothing we can do to stop this future. And understand very, in this view, people are more valuable than the planet. People are more valuable than the planet. We do not seek to save the planet at the expense of the people. We take the gospel to the world to save the people. But in the godless green worldview, there is no God. We must save ourselves. In this view, we don't act. If we don't act, then overpopulation will consume the resources and eventually destroy the planet. So we must stop this process. And in the green worldview, the planet is more valuable than the people. You will see this everywhere. How many movies? Just start going down your movie database. And how many movies over the last 25 years have you seen where in the movie somewhere, some futuristic movie, people are called a virus to the planet. I've seen multiple movies like, we're a virus that is destroying the planet. We must be destroyed. So understand, if you give your support to political movements that advance a green worldview, you are empowering those agencies that will one day kill you and your descendants. That's who you're empowering. The future for them is only possible if we reduce the population. We have to reduce the population. Martin Armstrong, an economist, uh, posted a satire about Greta, the uh, cute little Swedish girl who became famous as a green activist. He wrote as if she uh, woke, uh, she was in a dream and she woke up in a future in which the green worldview became a reality. And this is his little satire. She tossed aside her cotton, cotton sheet and wool blanket and stepped out onto a dirt floor covered with willow bark that had been pulverized with rocks. What's this? She asked. Pulverized willow bark, replied her fairy godmother. What happened to the carpet, she asked. Well, the carpet was nylon, which is made from butadiene and hydrogen cyanide, both from petroleum. Greta smiled, acknowledging that adjustments were necessary to save the planet, and moved to the sink to brush her teeth, where instead of a toothbrush, she found a willow mangled on one end to expose the wood fibers uh, bristles. Your old toothbrush, noted Godmother, also nylon. Where's the water, asked Greta. Down at the road in the canal, replied the godmother. Just make sure you avoid the water with the collar in it. Why is there no running water, Greta Greta asked, becoming a little peevish. Well, her godmother uh, said, uh, who happened to also teach um, engineering at MIT, uh, began a long monologue about how sink valves need elastomere seats and how copper pipes contain copper, which had to be mined, and how it was impossible to make an all-electric earth-moving equipment and no gear, with no gear lubrication and no tires, and how ore had to be smelted and uh, to make metal. And that's tough to do with only electricity as a source of heat. And even if you only use electricity as a source of heat, the wires need an insulation, and that's a petroleum-based product. And... Though most Swedish en- en- energy is produced in an environmentally friendly way uh, because of hydronuclear, if you do a mass energy balance around the whole system, you still need lots of petroleum products like lubricants and nylon and rubber for tires and asphalt for filling potholes and wax and iPhone plastic and uh, elastic to hold up your underwear while you're operating a copper smelting furnace. <laughs> <laughs> What's for breakfast, interjected Greta, whose head was hurting? Fresh range-fed chicken eggs. Raw. 
<laughs> Why raw, asked Greta. Well, once again, Greta was told about the need for petroleum products like transformer oil and, and scores of petroleum products essential for producing metals for frying pans. And in the end, Greta was educated about how you can't have petroleum-free world and then cook eggs unless you rip up your front fence and start a fire um, with the wood of your fence, carefully cooking your egg in an orange peel like you do in Boy Scouts. Not that you could find oranges in Sweden. But I want poached eggs like my Aunt Tilda makes, lamented Greta. Tilda died this morning from bacterial pneumonia. What? Interjected Greta. No one dies of bacterial pneumonia. We have penicillin. Not anymore, explained Grandma. The, pro- the production of penicillin requires a chemical extraction using isobutyl acetate, which, if you know your organic chemistry, is a petroleum-based product. Lots of uh, people are dying, which is problematic because there's not an easy way of disposing of the body since backhoes need hydraulic oil and crematoriums can, can't really burn many bodies using the fuel of Swedish fences and furniture, which is rapidly disappearing, being used uh, on the black market for roasting eggs. <laughs> this represents only a fraction of Greta's day, a day without microphones to exclaim into, and a day without much food, and a day without carbon fiber boats to sail in, but a day that will save the planet. <laughs> Understand the satire is really the agenda of the elites. The, the, the elites in the green movement want a future in which about two-thirds of the world's population dies. That's what they want. They want the resources for themselves and their, their families and their descendants. The green is not a movement of love, a movement of people who believe in a God of love. It is a movement that is led by those who do not believe in a biblical worldview, and thus they do not value human life over the planet. They value self-preservation. But they know that they cannot present their true agenda because everyone else also values self-preservation. So they present their agenda through the lens of what we must do to save the planet lest we all die. But the impact of their reforms become, when they, if the impact of their reforms become a reality, it will not impact everybody equally. The wealthy will still have their reserves, their, their, um, laboratories, their medical facilities, their generators, their factories, their private little workforce, their gardens, they will still have theirs. It's the most impoverished that will suffer without heat, without food, without water, without medicine. When you hear the rhetoric about saving the earth, consider implementing what they want to do and then look forward to the consequences on a global scale if that was actually true. Mass starvation, Rationing of resources, reduction of population. Now consider what Peter wrote about the future of the earth. This is in Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has from since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget... That long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. I'm going to pause there. Do we have scoffers today? Scoffing at the biblical account of creation? Scoffing at the biblical record of the flood? Notice it says they deliberately forget. Deliberately. He didn't say they were unaware and were never informed. They didn't have any evidence upon which to know. No, the evidence is, understand, when it comes to an intelligent design created uh, planet with life or the godless origins, they all know, and they deliberately reject it. In order to have life, it requires three elements. Requires physical matter, and this isn't any form that we know about life. Physical matter, energy, encoded information found in the DNA. Not just in the DNA molecules. DNA molecules are like letters in the alphabet. All of the theories you'll read in all of the godless journals will talk about how primordial soup, sparks of energy, this, that, or the other, formed the molecules. Okay, give them the molecules. You got the molecules. That's still up for debate. But having letters of the alphabet is not the same thing as having the Encyclopedia Britannica. Organizing those letters so that you code for complex information 
is impossible without an intelligence. And they all know it. And they all deliberately reject it. Now understand what happens in the mind. When truth is presented, you understand it. But it's not politically correct. You will lose your funding. You won't get your articles published. You will lose your position at university. The system is rigged against you to be honest, so you have to be dishonest. You have to deliberately reject. The mind becomes damaged. You become less capable of discerning. You become a scientist, and we all want to rely on science. We want to follow the, the thought leaders. But they are damaging their minds by rejecting evidence and truth, and they become less capable of actually discerning. We see this. Just watch what's happened this last year with the so-called science over the whole COVID virus. You will see many people who are out there touting this, that, or the other evidence that have no real discernment skills. They deliberately forget. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Why? Why? Why will it be reserved for fire? What does this mean? When you hear this, what law lens do you use? Human law lens? Judgment under human law lens means judicial review and verdict. Some external authority examining the evidence and making a ruling. If you were very, very sick and you ended up in an emergency room and you were examined very carefully by a doctor who maybe even took uh, MRI scans to look at the deepest recesses of your being, would you want him to examine all that evidence and make a judgment? We call it a diagnosis. Yes, a judgment. Judgment under design law is accurately diagnosing the condition of what is. And God accurately diagnoses the condition of each heart. The question is, what causes the condition of each heart to be what it is? God freely offers remedies so that you can have a new heart and right spirit. You can be reborn. You can have the heart circumcised. He offers it to you. What decides whether somebody actually gets a new heart and right spirit or whether they harden their heart? Who decides that? Is it the judge? They do choices. That's right. God diagnoses what is, but who decides what is, is the person. The human judicial system doesn't work that way. The judge doesn't decide what is. Excuse me, the, the, the people don't decide. The judge does. So the judge makes a ruling, and if he rules it, that's legally what happens. So innocents are let off or, 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 or convicted and put in jail. Uh, guilty people are, are let go in human justice system. And notice what happens when Paul says, about what happens. Why do the wicked perish in the end? In 2 Thessalonians 2, starting verse 11. For they perish because they refuse the truth and so be saved. They refuse the truth. And it says that God gave them over to strong delusion to believe a lie. I've heard preachers say, well, see, if you don't accept the truth, God will make you delusional. Because the Bible says he'll give, he'll give them over to strong delusion or in this version, it says God sends them powerful delusions. See, God makes people delusional. Is that how it works? No. What happens to your mind if you reject truth on any subject matter? It doesn't matter what the subject is. We go out on a clear day and we look up at the sky and it's blue. And I say, that's a beautiful blue sky. Maybe we get out a, a, a light wave meter, uh, a wa wavelength meter and we, we measure the refracted light and we can give you the exact nanometer wavelength of that blue that's coming back to us. And I can give that to you as information. And I tell you, that's blue with this wavelength. You're still free to reject it, aren't you? I don't believe that. No way. I, I reject that. You can. But if you reject that, what's the only thing for your mind left to settle on? A lie. That's why they're given over. If you reject truth, your mind will believe something else, but everything else is a lie. And if you practice that process over time, you become delusional, a mass delusion. And this is what's happening in the world today. I see it all over the place. People are becoming less and less capable of figuring or seeing the difference between actual truth and, and falsehood. Belief is no longer your belief. The tr here's a truth. You have the power to decide what you believe. God has given you that power. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Romans 14, 5. 
But that's replaced with a lie. Well, that's your truth. This is my truth. It's not that's your belief and this is my belief. It's relabeled as truth. All beliefs are now truths. That's actually an untruth. <laughs> but that's the common view today. Isn't it? Is it not? And then when you believe that, then people start believing things and call things that are completely contradictory to reality truths. And people then have their minds decoupled from any measurable objectives and life becomes very anxiety-provoking, very frightening. We, we don't know where to step. We don't want decisions to make and, and because we, we can't predict anything anymore because there's no objective truth. So what do we need to do to have feel safe? We need somebody in authority to tell us. And so people stop thinking, they stop reasoning, they stop weighing evidence, they stop looking for answers. They look to an authority figure, somebody that they will trust to get it right for them. This is what we see happening in society today. People become less and less capable because they're being propagandized. Like, here's instead of your belief and my belief, that's your truth, here's my truth. My truth is, this is what some people are saying, my truth is there's no male and female. Gender is just something you feel inside. Understand every species on earth has male and female. And we see it everywhere we look. And we all know it. And we can't reproduce without a male and a female. And we all know it. But it, but, but that's bigoted. That's sexist. That's intolerant. That's cruel. Uh, how could you say such a thing, Dr. Jennings? In California, there's a bill before the assembly right now that if it's passed, it's pending, if it's passed, will find stores $1,000 if they have a boys' section and a girls' section in the clothing department or the toy department. Because there is no boys and girls. There's no male and female. We all know there's no male and female, right? No, we don't. But many people are being told, if you actually think there's male and female, you're closed-minded. You're un unenlightened. You're uneducated. You're bigoted. You're a religionist. You're critical. You're unkind. You're cruel. Don't you understand there are people who have gender confusion? Yes, there are. There are people who have gender confusion. And if you should say that there's boys and girls, it hurts their feelings. Don't you love them enough to, to, to go along with this lie that there isn't one? And minds become damaged. Critical reasoning is undermined. Just tell us, your Supreme Excellency, What's the new law that our Congress needs to pass that I can obey? It leads to craziness, like the Biden administration's ruling that transgendered male to female transgendered athletes can compete in women's sports for women's scholarships in college. Now, you understand that there are actually biological differences that, that happened at, at puberty when testosterone hits, m males grow taller, their m muscles grow denser, their bones grow uh, denser. They actually have larger heart and lung capacity, better oxygen-carrying capacity. And all of that physiological benefit maintains after they lower their testosterone levels with a sex reassignment surgery. But that would be objective truth and facts, and we don't live in a land of objective truth and facts anymore. We live in a land, well, that's your truth. My truth is they're, all, it's, it, they're just equal. No, they're not. Are you going to think? Are you going to reason? Are you going to surrender your thinking to others? Continue on with, the, uh, with Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed in the fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to be... You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Oh, that's an exciting idea. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promise, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. What's the future of the planet if we have a biblical worldview? Understand reality uh, that this planet is going to be destroyed as we know it. And praise God. <clears throat> Praise God. Uh, also, this body I'm in. I'm so glad I'm getting an upgrade. <laughs> I don't know if you've looked in the mirror, like I've done a few times, and, and I've been able to say, I'm, I'm really glad to know this is not as good as the Lord can do. <laughs> he can do better. When I was younger, I, I didn't think so, but as I get older, I realize that's really true. Yeah. <laughs> 
Understand, things are going to get worse on earth before it gets better, though. Satan is going to be unleashed. And he's going to cause all types of catastrophes and problems and climate change and rising oceans and terrible storms and famines and pandemics. And he's going to cause these with increasing intensity to incite fear. And those who have not rejected God but say say loyal will be blamed. Those who speak truth will be ostracized. And those who have rejected God, who the future is up to them, as the nature starts to become less stable, they become more frightened, more fearful. And what does fear lead people to do? Be more gracious or more controlling? more controlling. They want to control more to make make themselves feel safe. So they will seek more power. They will legislate more rules. They will coerce more people. They will take away more freedoms. Ultimately, we have to call the population. I was, uh, uh, Ellen White wrote in Manuscript Releases, page 14, the following. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord, but upon them, but in this way. This is how it happens. If you, if you have people who still live in the, in the imperial law view, the human law view, where God's the sovereign who makes it happen, who's, who uses power to, 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 his judgments are to punish people, this is how she says his judgments come. They, but, but they come out in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then... God does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Is there a Bible text that comes to mind that supports this view as how things unfold? Revelation 7. The four angels at the four winds. And the four angels have been given power to harm the land and the, and the sea and so forth. And how was, how, how have they been given that power? What action do they actually take? They let go what they've been holding and that is what results in the harm. They don't actively harm. They simply rest, uh, stop restraining what they're holding back, which are Satan's powers. So if you're a Christian and you're supporting the political movement of the green, you are supporting the enemy of God. You're empowering those who value the planet more than the people, who don't believe in, a, in God. They've rejected the spirit of God. And if you reject the spirit of God, then you're following the enemy of God. They will pass and advance policies designed to save the planet that will hurt the people. I can see it. I hope you can see it. It's obvious to me. As children of God, we love the people more than the planet. Of course, we want to care for the planet, but we understand that whole nature groans under the weight of sin, and the planet's not going to get better. And we look forward to a planet that he makes new, but we love the people, and we want to take the gospel to the people. We don't want to call the population. We want to save the population. So don't misunderstand what I'm I'm saying. I'm going to repeat something that I said earlier, because sure... As I'm standing here, I will get emails this week that if I don't repeat this, people will mishear what I'm saying. So I'm going to repeat this. I've already said this. Rejecting the green movement does not mean that we fail to be good stewards of the earth in governance of ourselves. No, we have responsibility to be good stewards of the earth, to not pollute, to not exploit, to not destroy We practice God's methods, and we won't do these things, but we will not give our support to a godless movement that values the planet more than the people, and and that will initiate policies that will hurt billions. We won't do it. We will love our neighbors. Now, what do you think about the second part of our memory verse? The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. What do we think about that? The former shall not be remembered. Does this mean that in the new heaven and earth, we won't remember our sin sickness? Our sins will be forgotten. We won't have memory of those things. Is that what it means? Somebody's saying yes. So we won't remember how we've been delivered, our heartaches, the pain that we've suffered under in God's healing of our heart. We won't remember that. 
Oh, she says the memory of it is what keeps it from happening again. So the problem, if we do believe that we get memory erasure, amnesia, then it, it can happen again. We're no, there's no security. Yeah, the lies can be told, people believe them again. I think we'll deliberately remember forgetting it. We'll remember forgetting it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember, uh, uh, and, and that actually doesn't protect us either. We're still vulnerable. Well, it, we'll remember. We'll just remember that we don't want to, we don't want to go back there again. So you mean that we choose not to think about it, but we still have memory of it. When you forgive someone, you don't forget So, exactly. So you have memory of it. You have memory. Okay. Yes, we're in agreement. Because if you don't have memory, then the whole lies could take root again. And what happens to our love and appreciation for God if we don't remember? Remember what Jesus said uh, when the woman was uh, anointing his feet with the expensive oil? He said to Simon, those who are forgiven much, love much. If we don't remember what God has done to save us, what we've been delivered from, we've been forgiven... It undermines our love. If you if you want to resonate with that, just imagine you had a child that was dying of some terminal disease, and the doctors here in town said there's nothing they can do. And you and you're watching your child get sick and sick and sick and sick, and they're suffering. Your heart is being torn. And some other doctor flies in, hears about your case, walks in, gives them one pill. They swallow it, and boom, the disease goes away. They're healed. They're well. Would you appreciate that doctor? And he did it for free. <laughs> would you say, JJ? Would would you have? Would you cherish that doctor? But then happens tomorrow. You wake up. Your child's very healthy, no disease, but you have no memory of the sickness or the delivery. Do you still love that doctor as much? Ah, so we wipe memory. We wipe the deep love and appreciation we have for God. We don't wipe memory. Also, what's it mean in the Bible when it talks about that in the new heaven and earth, we will sing a song of our experience if we don't remember it? And, of course, I love the example of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. In the new heaven and the new earth, they're talking, and here comes Solomon. Hey, Mom! Uriah goes, oh, I didn't know I left you a child. Well, actually, that's uh, David's uh, son. Well, how did that happen? Ooh, well, we, we have no memory of that. We don't recall that up here. Uh, and an angel goes, um, oh, well, here's a Bible I could share with you. <laughs> oh, we, well, we don't allow Bibles in heaven because we've had to right wipe the record. Is that how it's going to work? What keeps him from being angry, Uriah being angry with David? What keeps Uriah from being angry? What do you think? Any, any other thoughts? What, what keeps Uriah from being angry with David? Love. Love. He loves David. He loves and he celebrates so glad David's in heaven and not lost. If you're having a hard time with that, parents, if you have a child who has done something, not just steal a cookie, maybe something wicked. Maybe they've done what, maybe your child is a murderer and they're in prison for murder. But they repent. They find Christ. They give their heart to the Lord. And they're in heaven. Would you be disappointed? <laughs> what? You're a murderer. I don't want you here. Or would you celebrate? Would you be happy? How about if they murdered your spouse? Your child murdered your spouse. Their father or mother. Well, I, I, I know someone this happened to. Their child killed their brother and the wife and shot the dad. The dad survived. That person's on death row in Tennessee. And the father forgave the son, ministered to the son, and in prison the son gave his heart to the Lord, and he, he's written a book about it. And I met him. It's a quite a profound story. Last name's Whitaker. I can't remember the first name off the top of my head. You can read about it. Look it up in the Internet. He celebrates because he loves him. That's what I see, love. Consider the quote, this quote from the book, The Great Controversy, page 499. Satan's rebellion, regarding the question of do we remember, Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson to the universe through all coming ages, a perpetual testimony to the nature and terrible result of sin. If it's to be a perpetual testimony of the nature and result of sin, what would be required for that to be true? 
We would have to remember. That's all. That's it. Continue on with the quote. The working out of Satan's rule, its effect upon men and angels, would show what must be the fruit of setting aside the divine authority. Some have read this and argued, well, yes, we remember Satan's sin because he didn't repent. And we remember the sins of the wicked because they're still in the books. But for the righteous that repent and the blood of Jesus supplied, those sins get raised and we don't have any memory of those. Well, in your life, if you're going to learn the lessons of what the effects of sin cost, are those lessons most forcefully and deeply learned by observing it in someone else's life or when you've stumbled in your own life? If those lessons have come home to the heart, don't we have to remember how we bought into it, how we participated, what it did to us and our loved ones, and then our deliverance from it through the grace of Christ? Isn't that really what brings the lesson home? Continue with the quote. It would testify that the existence of God's government and his law is bound up is bound up the well-being of all creatures he has made. Thus the history of this terrible the history of this terrible experiment of rebellion was to be a perpetual safeguard to all holy intelligences to prevent them from being deceived as to the nature of transgression to save them from committing sin and suffering its punishment. What keeps us secure in heaven in the future a perpetual safeguard? is the intimate knowledge and remembrance of what sin did here on earth and what Christ and God did through Christ to eradicate it. And then regarding this very passage from the SDA Bible Commentary, page 332, it reads, Some have felt that the prophet here predicts a future oblivion. Oblivion means we don't remember anything. It's oblivious. Oblivion concerning things of the earth, at least concerning past sins. The Hebrew of this verse need not be so understood. Zekar, translated remembered, frequently defines the action or condition that results from conscious memory. For example, the statement that the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God does not mean that God never entered their conscious mind. It simply means that the people did not render unto Jehovah the worship that a knowledge of him should have led them to render. If such a shade of meaning is attached to the Isaiah statement, then the passage may not may be understood to assert that a memory of former things will no longer distress or annoy the mind or cause feelings of remorse. A knowledge of the history of the great controversy will be the safeguard against any future repetition of the evil experiment with sin. That's correct. That's how I see it. Does that make sense to everyone? Questions about that? So it doesn't mean memory erasure. It means simply that we will not be tormented in our mind. We will not have intrusive thoughts. We will not have thoughts of guilt or shame. We will know the facts, but we will be at peace in our mind in spite of those historic facts. How reassuring that is to think that if you make it, say, and your children don't, to spend eternity concerned or crying or upset because your kids didn't make it, you'd understand why they didn't make it. Need to accept it. Oh yeah, and and, and we will we will actually get into evidence as to why here in just a moment. But anybody want to want to answer? Why will you be at peace? Because they wouldn't be happy in heaven. You know. She, that's it. You will be at peace if your loved ones aren't there because you know that the only reason they're not there is because. They deeply don't want to be there, number one. And number two, if they were brought there, it would be against their will. And number three, if they were brought there against their will, it would be a place of torment and torture to them. They would be miserable there, and they would hate it. And thus God loves them too much to make the, to torment them in that way and force them to be there. So you can be assured they're at the place they have the greatest peace. And that's how you can have peace. See, there's this magical thinking. This goes to the false law view. If you have God's laws like human law and just made up rules and then God enforces it with uh, the exercise of a supreme authority, this is often uh, you know, under the Rubicon of God's sovereignty. So God's in charge. God makes it happen. His sovereignty is absolutely sovereign, but it's always through his design laws. But if you have this idea, then people begin thinking, well, if God wanted them in heaven, he would just pardon them and they would be there. They're out because God refused to pardon them. Well, he, he would have pardoned them, but they just didn't make the, uh, the, um, the claim of the blood to apply to their account. So he was restricted by his law from pardoning them, but he didn't as hard he wanted to. 
Three million two hundred ninety-eight seven thousand and twelve sins, and they only can, they, they, there was one they forgot to confess, and, and that one remained on the books, and they had to be punished for it. This type of thinking—it's quite corrupt. It's not reality-based. It's not how reality works. So, Monday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, through the prophet, God reiterates the appeal and warning that permeates the book. God will save and restore the humble who tremble tremble at his word. Isaiah 41, he will comfort them. But he will destroy those who rebel against him. These include hypocrites of ritual whose sacrifice he rejects, as well as those who hate and reject his, his faithful ones. They also include those who practice pagan abominations such as those practiced at the temple in Jerusalem. What do we understand is going on here? He will destroy these various people. Will those who refuse God's repentance be destroyed in the end? Yes. Absolutely. No question about it. How does that come about, though, is the big question. And that goes directly to which law model you hold. If you hold a human law model, then the way it's taught is God has a law, and justice requires he enforces law. If he doesn't enforce it, then there's just anarchy and the law has no value. And so God, as a just God, will always enforce his law. He has to punish somebody. Somebody has to be punished for broken law. And he loves us too much. So he sent Jesus and all the sins of everybody were put on Jesus and God punished Jesus. And if you accept the payment Jesus made, then you can have legal pardon put on your record book and God won't have to punish you. The idea being here that if God could just get some anger management classes, and restrain his wrath. The wicked could live eternally in sin because sin isn't actually harmful. God harms you for it. That's the idea. It's completely corrupt. It's not true. According to Galatians, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Not from God. God is the source of life. Understanding his design laws are the protocols upon which life and health are built. Any deviations are destructive to those who, who step out of harmony with them. It destroys them. And, and what's required from God is to intervene, to put us back in harmony, to heal us, to restore us, to set us right, to justify us, so that we are now in harmony with his law so we can have eternal life. All this other stuff is fraudulent. It keeps people in a false security, claiming a legal standing with God that their actual condition does not merit. Now, people will accuse us when I, when I expose this fraud, this penal substitutionary lie, of not believing in substitutionary atonement. It's a complete lie. We absolutely believe in substitutionary atonement. Substitution. Jesus, our substitute, took our place in order to provide us salvation. As the scripture teaches, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. There it is. Substitution. But here's the reason from the Bible. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Not so that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. That's the penal view. He's, he legally declares us in a record-keeping system in heaven to account us as being righteous even though we remain unrighteous. It's a fraud. It's a con job. It's not true. And people claim it, they feel peace while they continue to sear their conscience, harden their hearts, and, and corrupt their characters. So why is it the wicked are destroyed in the end? Do the wicked, including Satan, have life that originates with them? Do they have the ability to live on their own, disconnected from God? And what does sin do to that connection? It severs the connection, and when that when God completely lets them go and no longer by grace holds on, what happens? They die. What happens to a branch that is broken off of the vine? If it's not grafted back in, and we are the branches grafted into Christ, we receive the life of Christ through grace into our hearts. That's how we have life. We don't have it original, unborrowed. Christ has it original, unborrowed. He shares his immortal, divine life with all of us, so we become partakers of the divine nature if we trust him. So why do the wicked die? Well, Isaiah 33, verse 14 says, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the everlasting burning? 
And verse 15 tells you the answer. You guys know the answer. He who walks righteously and keeps and speaks what is right, rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who dwells there. What? I, I, you want to have fun with people? Read Isaiah 33, 14 and ask them, what is that talking about? They'll say hell. And who, and who, who spends eternity in that fire? Ask them. They'll tell you the wicked. And then read them verse 15. It blows their mind up every time. <laughs> it does. I remember when I first read it, it blew my mind up. I was like, this doesn't make sense. This does not compute. It's not what I was taught. So I had to start my Bible search and let my Bible speak to me. And if you go through the scripture, Moses talks at the, to God at the bush. And what's the bush doing? Burning, but it doesn't get consumed. At Sinai, it says that the, the, the mountain looked like it was on fire with a consuming fire, but the mountain did not melt. Solomon's temple's dedication. The priest can't enter because the brightness of God's glory is so bright they can't go in, but the building didn't burn down. Lucifer in, in Ezekiel 28 walks among the fiery stones of God's presence. The Ancient of Days takes his throne in Daniel 7, and it says rivers of Fire come out from before him, and 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a... Satan's grand lie that the whole world buys, the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire, and it's God's very presence. The righteous are transformed to live in it. And the wicked are consumed by it. But why? Do you remember when Moses came down off the mountain? He's now radiating something. Something's going on there. His face is bright. He doesn't have his, uh, he doesn't have little LED lights with a little battery back up going over here. His whiskers did not catch fire. This was not combustion. It's not combustion. It's not what it is. Something else. But it's called fire. But it's not combustion. Matter is not uh, oxidizing rapidly. And what did the children of Israel do when they saw his face? Did they celebrate? Did they rejoice? Did they, did they begin to radiate their, their own light? Or did they shrink away in discomfort, begging him to, to cover his face? They wanted to hide from the face of him who came down from the mountains. Is giving any thoughts like maybe people are going to beg for the mountains to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne same process happening exact same process what caused their discomfort what what are we learning this is evidence-based thinking looking at an objective process that's happening is the fire hurting moses but it hurt them why nadab and abihu Take unauthorized fire into the, into the sanctuary before the Lord. It says, read the text. It says, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses sends in the cousins, and the cousins go in and, and according to Scripture, drag them out, quote, still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? <laughs> Understand, evidence-based Scripture reading. This was not combustion. This was some other process happening. The fires of what? Well, these are the fires that consume sin. Ellen White expands on the Hebrews 12.29. She goes, to sin wherever it is found. Our God is a consuming fire. To sin. Now, what's sin made out of? Is it made out of molecules? Do I break uh, this, this piece of wood? Do I get a piece of sin here? The physical matter that makes up your body, if I cut off your finger, do I get a piece of sin? Understand, the fire that consumes in the end is not combustion. It's the fire that consumes sin. Now, what is sin made out of? Two elements, according to Scripture. Satan is the father of. So what is it that will burn out lies? Truth. Truth. And the other element of sin is selfishness. And what is it that burns out selfishness? And the spirit is called the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, when the spirit fell, how many streams of fire did they see? Two. In the old King James English, it was a forked tongues of fire. In other words, a split or split hooves of fire. It's like a split hoof on a, on a, uh, uh, a cow. 
yeah, or a or a forked tongue. It's two. There were two streams. The fires of truth and love. And did they get hurt? Did the apostles get hurt by that fire? Because their hearts were right. So understand, and what does it say in Thessalonians? The wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. But the righteous are transformed by the brightness of his coming. Do you, do you not know that you're not going to be transformed by the brightness of his coming? According to Ellen White, you will start brightening up. You will start shining. Your face will start glowing, according to her, like Moses did coming off the mountain before Christ actually appears. And the Bible says when we see him, we see him face to face, for we shall be like him. Our face are going to be. Uh, if you want other evidence, biblical evidence, what happened to the transfiguration? Jesus in his mortal body, this body that died shortly thereafter, what does the Bible describe him looking like there? The sun. Pure white light like the sun. And who stood next to him? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. And what they look like? They same thing. What does it teach us? That fire is not harmful. Jesus' mortal body was not harmed by it. Evidence-based Bible reading. It doesn't harm physical matter. It harms lies and it harms selfishness. And so what happens to the wicked when they stand in God's infinite life-giving glory and their unrepented sins that they've committed through their lives, which normally cause shame and guilt, but people don't like shame and guilt. We've all had this process if we haven't until we've repented. There was a time we've all done it where we initially deny and we distort and we blame and we externalize trying to avoid personal responsibility from some wrong, right? What happens to those who have denied and denied and distorted and distorted and lied to themselves and lied to themselves and blamed and projected and externalized uh, sin after sin, year after year, decade after decade? What will happen when they come into the presence of infinite truth and infinite love? Will their lives work in God's presence? No. So they become aware. They have awareness of something they've been trying not to be aware of. And that's their own condition of character and heart and their own history of what they've done to people. And I think it's awareness on a infinite scale as much as their, as much as their mind can process, meaning they, they're aware of the, of the pain that their victims felt. They have awareness. Truth is brought home. And there's a weeping and a gnashing. Of it's not an infliction. It's what truth and love does to those who have uh, harbored and I'm going to uh, skip a, there's a whole long, uh, great controversy quote from 542 and 543, which he describes this process about how he would bring them to heaven if he could. He, all of his love and beauty and the, and, and, the, and the majesty of heaven would be torment to them. It would be torture to them. They would hate there. He would not chain them by themselves and torment them in this way. And he says, um, they would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. Notice that. The wicked are out of heaven voluntarily. That's how design law works. God doesn't restrict access. They don't want to be there because they're un... And she goes on to say, they're unfitted for heaven. It says, like the waters of the flood, the great day declares God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. They're incurable. He can't do... No truth and love has any impact on them. It doesn't bring them to repentance. It only causes pain and suffering, but they still hate it. They love the selfishness. And, and I'm going to jump ahead because I want to read this quote that many people struggle with out of Ellen White's writing about the end of the thousand years, the end of it all. And this is what she writes. And it has to do with a text in Isaiah we won't have time to unpack fully out of Thursday's lesson where it talks in Isaiah uh, about one new moon to another, one Sabbath to another. They bow down before me. And it says... Uh, and they go out and look upon the dead bodies, the rebelled against them, and the worm will not die, nor their fire be quenched. 
and they will be loathsome to all mankind. And then Ellen White describes this out of Early Writings, page 294. It says, Satan rushed into the midst of his followers and stirred up the multitude to action, but fire from God out of heaven has rained upon them. And the great men and mighty men, the noble, the poor, the miserable, are all consumed together. I saw that some were quickly destroyed, while others suffered longer. They were punished according to the deeds that they'd done in the body. Some were many days consuming, and just as long as there was any portion of them unconsumed, any sense of suffering remained, said the angel, the worm of life shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched as long as there's at least particle for it to prey upon. Satan and his angels suffered long. Satan bore not only the weight and punishment of his own sins, but also the sins of the redeemed host which had been placed upon him. And he must also suffer for the ruin of the souls which he has caused. Thus I saw Satan and all the wicked host were consumed. When the justice of God was satisfied, and all the angelic host and the redeemed of the saints said with a loud voice, Amen. <laughs> Do you all have clarity on that, and we can now adjourn, or should we discuss that? Should I leave for that for you to enjoy and wrestle with the rest of your Sabbath? No. <laughs> Design law, folks, how reality works. This is so easy to understand. I gave you the evidences already. This is the fire of God's presence, the fire that doesn't hurt uh, Jesus' mortal body. Because he's sinless. It's fire that doesn't hurt those that stand in the rivers of fire, the 10,000 times 10,000 and thousand thousand. The fires are not harmful. These same fires are sometimes referred to as the lake of fire. And what does Revelation say is thrown in the lake of fire? Say it, say it. Death and hell, or death in Hades, or death in the grave. Death in the grave are thrown in the lake of fire, along with all the unrepentant. Now, how can you kill death? Think that through. You can. You can kill death. What kills death? Life. Life kills death. And so this lake of fire that death is thrown into is the fire of God's life-giving glory coming out from his throne as it's revealed. Says in Revelation 14 under the third angel's message about the fire and brimstone forever and ever. But where does that happen according to Revelation 14? This is a quote, not me. In the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. That's where the fire is, in Jesus' presence. That's where they sort, that's where they're, that's where they're tormented. Why did some take days? Ah. Uh huh. What are the fires? Now, I've, I've, I've described it. You tell me, what are the, the fires of God's life-giving glory? Describe it. What qualities do they possess? The fires of? Truth and love. And what are they burning through? Lies and selfishness. Who has the most selfish heart and the most lies of anyone? Who has the longest history of rebellion? The deepest, the deepest, uh, and who uh, has the responsibility for the pain of everyone else's sin because they led them into it? So why do you think he burns the longest? Takes much longer because he resists and fights the longest against the truth, and he has the longest record of lies that the truth burns through before he voluntarily says, "I surrender. I don't want to live in this universe." That's what happens. It's not an infliction. God does not perform a miracle to keep some people alive while he tortures them in, in some type of combustion fire or a nuclear holocaust. That's not what happens. It's reality, and we will watch. Power of Love training and equipping course. We have 17 15- to 20-minute lectures on our website. One of them is hell, and it goes through this. One of them is what happens at the end of the thousand years. There's another quote talking about this fire that we just... If you bring another quote out of a Great Controversy, she talks about the end of the thousand years when they march on the city, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open. There's a period of time where the wicked... And God keeps no one out. They don't want to come in. And then Jesus is high and lifted up. And the fire from his throne, she says, fire comes down from God and consumes him. According to another place, you put it together, the fire goes down into the city first and then out through the gates onto the land, under the earth. Who's in the city? Why does it go through the city first? As a demonstration, evidence. He doesn't want you to believe it because he says so. He wants you to understand this fire that's causing them to suffer 
brings you joy. It's not hurt. It's not harmful fire. It's just the fire of truth and love that you have chosen to be healed by and you will live in forever. It goes through the city and out to the earth. And then after all the wicked have had their lies and selfishness burned to the point, they surrender. They voluntarily give up their lives. And then the dead bodies are there. Then the fires of combustion come and cleanse the entire earth and the earth is made new. So you say when they give up their lives, that's when they just die. Yeah, they surrender. They give up. They surrender it back. They don't want to live. They stop fighting and resisting. God does not take their life. He lets them understand this world we live in right now is a world of grace where God veils his life-giving glory. You know that, right? You saw a glimpse of what it would be like at the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah show you what God's heavenly reality will be. Revelation says in the New Jerusalem will need not a sun to light the place because God's presence will be its light. We are living in a dark world, veiled because we would not survive it yet. God needs to fix healing, continue healing our hearts and prepare us to be able to stand in that presence. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's waiting for. And we hasten the day by cooperating and having our hearts prepared to meet him. So he'll come. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for the truth that you revealed, for the way you run your universe, for the fact that you have all power and are completely trustworthy with the power, Lord. We ask that your spirit of truth and love will be poured into our hearts and minds. We ask for the latter rain to come to uh, transform, enlighten, and ennoble us that we can be your agents on this planet that is so darkened right now, Lord. And we hope, uh, we, we hope for your presence, we ask for your presence, and we, we ask that you will enable us to uh, hasten the day so that we can see you very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.